really starting in, into a few things tonight. Let's briefly go back and look at what we've covered so far and give you an opportunity to bring up any questions or make any comments that you want to make. And as we go through here, we'll get in the process of actually going through the book tonight. Our main concern at first is not to get into every single solitary verse in a detailed way of trying to figure out what every single solitary symbol means. But the first thing as we look at this entire book will be an overall view and certain basic premises that run throughout the book. And as we look at the overall view and those basic premises and then get the setting of the whole book, then we'll back up and zero in on these specifics. But as we go through Revelation at first, we're going to do it in overall view, get the basic premise of the book itself, who he's writing to, what's underway. Uh, if there's a judgment situation, rather than define every little uh, symbol that may be used in that judgment situation, our concern is this is a judgment. God's doing something here uh, to judge people, whatever it may be. Then we'll come back later and zero in on this in a more specific way. First, let's briefly note how the, what we've covered so far. We have established thus far the dating of the book of Revelation as being before 70 AD. I handed you out 12 articles on that. Uh, you all, I've got those 12 articles I'll give you tonight. Do you have those 12 articles? And does anybody, based on anything you've read up at this point or checked out, or on your examination of the articles, have anything on any of those articles that you'd like to comment on or question? <laughs> to the best of my knowledge, that represents the, at least a very good sampling of the scholarship. I could multiply, but that represents a very good sampling of the scholarship itself. In fact, as you can see that in looking at the materials, uh, Brother Wallace did an outstanding job research in that line. And he quotes the very top scholars that have dealt with this over the centuries. Alright, then we looked at the internal evidence concerning putting the book of Revelation before 70 AD. And what we noted that beginning with Matthew all the way through the New Testament, there is a speaking of a judgment to come against the Jewish people. Jesus in the Gospels spoke regularly of a judgment that was going to come against the Jewish people. They were to reject their Messiah. They were to reject the church that he had come to establish. They were going to try to stomp it out. All through the centuries, they had fought the will of God. And he even made the statement in the 23rd chapter of Matthew that, that all of the blood from uh, Cain, or Abel, I should say, to Zacharias, all the righteous blood that had been shed in their history was going to be required on that generation. And he promised the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the city. And we noted that to really appreciate this, one has to fully understand Judaism. Destroying Jerusalem was not like destroying New York City in the United States. It wasn't even like destroying Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles or any other city. All of Judaism revolved around the city of Jerusalem. It was absolutely the only place their temple could be. It had to be built in exactly that way. And it was only there that the Jew could offer sacrifices in worship to God. It was also there where most of the Levites, the political priesthood, were. And so to destroy, to destroy the city is to wipe out their place of worship, to wipe out any possibility of animal sacrifices, and to wipe out even the very pre 
priesthood. Also, with Israel, their conception of the Messiah to come was that he was going to come through the lineage of David. To wipe out Jerusalem was to wipe out all the records that they had. There is no Jew today that traces lineage back to any specific tribe. In short, the law of Moses and the Old Covenant would literally cease at the end of the destruction of Jerusalem. Oh, I know there are Jews in the world today and have been through the centuries. But there are no Jews in the world today like there were then who can stand up and say, I am of the tribe of Dan, or I am of the tribe of Judah, or I am of the tribe of Bersheba, whatever it may be, or from, from uh, Benjamin, I should say. Nobody can stand up and say that. Or anybody, nobody can stand up and say, I'm qualified to offer the sacrifice. I am a Levite. That just simply doesn't exist today. And so he was destroyed for all back and purpose. Jesus pointed the way to that. The other letters definitely speak of this imminent judgment that was going to come about in their lifetime. Well, then when we get to Revelation, we notice something. That just as there was a judgment promised, and it was going to be imminent, and it was in their lifetime, then when we get to Revelation, we find the same thing. There is a very imminent judgment. A very, very, very imminent judgment spoken of as coming soon. And we pointed out the literal Greek is literally to come speedily. We also noted that in looking at these verses of Revelation, that the Jews were still a persecuting force against Christianity at the time this book was written. After 70 AD, the Jews never were a formidable force against Christianity again. We know that the meaning of the word revelation means an uncovering. God never intended for it to be a mystery that people could not understand. If it's a mystery that nobody can understand, it is not a revelation. Uh, Paul in Ephesians 3 spoke of many of the prophecies in the Old Testament as being just that, a mystery. But then they were revealed to the apostles by the Holy Spirit, and they wrote about it and they could understand it. So to reveal something is to take something that is a mystery and make it so people can understand it. And so revelation is to do the opposite of what people give it credit for doing. It's literally to reveal something, put it in a way that it can be understood. God gave to Jesus, gave to the angel, gave to John, and then we noted again, must soon take place. He introduces the book by saying that this must soon take place and again, the Greek literal, to occur with speed. And then again, in Romans 1 and 3, those who hear it and take to heart because the time is near. And again, to emphasize to your mind, that is, at least in my judgment, a ridiculous statement. If you're talking about something that's thousands of years in the future, and you're telling people of that day, and you listen, and you take it to heart, and time is near, and this, this is about to happen. Now, I've added a little bit to this from last week. First, we noted that the second churches were in the province of Asia, a Roman province in the west coastal part of Asia Minor. And here are the seven churches, okay? Then, what I've got down bottom that I added is that after 70 AD, there was many more, they should be were, the VRE instead of was, there were many more churches. Okay? After 70 AD, remember we pointed
place, there are a literally, according to history, a multitude of churches in Asia Minor. But it's interesting that at this time, about 70 AD, the historians say there was just seven churches, and it's these seven churches that you read in Revelation. Now, remember from studying Colossians that you read at the end of the fourth chapter, the 16th verse, that the letter that I've written, the Laodiceans, you read it, and then you send your letter to them. You get the indication that Colossae and, and uh, Laodicea that you read about in these seven churches are very close. Well, they were. Uh, the city of Colossae was only about 12 miles from the city of Laodicea. But here's what happened, uh, at least interesting. In about 50 AD, somewhere in there, somewhere in the 50s AD, there was an earthquake at Colossae. And Colossae was destroyed, the city of the Colossians. And it was never rebuilt again. And since it was only about 12 miles from Laodicea, many of the people simply went to live in Laodicea, and the church there in Colossae really became part of the church of the Laodiceans. And so what we read as a church of the Colossians that Paul wrote to, and very close to Laodicea, and then yet it's, Colossae is not one of these seven churches, Remember, it was destroyed by an earthquake. They did not rebuild the city. Uh, they went and became part, most of them did, of the city of Laodicea. Most members of the church would become part of that in Laodicea. And at the time of 70 AD, right in that area, all we have is these seven churches. In other words, history cannot point to any more than these seven churches. That's interesting. And then after that, though, coming on down to in the 90s, we have literally a multitude of churches in this particular area. And again, putting this forth as just simply another strong evidence of the fact that this book was written before 70 AD and not up in the 90s or 96 AD where it has traditionally been put down in the years. Also, we noted in 1 and 1, John tells you at the onset he's dealing with material that has been signified. Now, this is a case where the King James, the American Standard, the New King James, the third preciseness is actually a help here. The New International Version and some of the others said that he would simply show the things that are going to come. Well, that may be what he did. But the literal word is signified, and that is accurate. And, and the word signified means to show in, say, it was meant to let you know that he's going to show it in sign-type language. That's the meaning of the word itself. And so John tells you that by symbols and sign language, you're going to get some of this information. Now, this is also important to our study. And that is the looked at Acts. I've given you all a chance to read this during the course of the week. Of course, we're studying Acts on Sunday night. And we said it's interesting, Acts is our inspired history of the New Testament church. And all through the book of Acts, we have Jewish persecution of Christians. In fact, that's just about the only persecution that Christians had, was the persecution of the Jews. And whenever the Romans enter, in on, enter into the persecution, it's because they've been instigated by the Jews. And this is important because we again wanted to establish this point. Someone says, and this is a question I had, you know, years back when I was studying this out and posting various questions. Why was it such a tremendously big factor to the Lord's church 
next to Jerusalem. They pursued it all over the Roman world. And all of these cities in the Roman Empire that we read about in the New Testament all had Jewish synagogues. And the Jews were very zealous. And they had already made many converts of the Gentiles. For example, it's Cornelius, who was already a convert to Judaism. And they were teaching the people about the Messiah to come. And so Christianity right away spreads to all these areas. Remember, it had its birth on the day of Pentecost. And you've got Jews from all these cities that have come home, converted, and they go back. They're scattered by the persecution. Well, as they go back to these various cities, one of the first, in fact, we know that the Apostle Paul, in his preaching, the first place he went was always into his synagogue. And there were those that would convert, and then there were those that could not preach and would, would persecute them, and there were those Jews that pursued the apostles wherever they went and pursued them with persecution, and they would try to stir up the crowds against them. And this goes all the way through the book of Acts. It's all the way down until the 60s A.D., and then remember now, everybody, who was it in the 60s that began the serious persecution of the Jews? What Roman? Nero. Nero. Okay, Nero actually becomes emperor in 54, but at first he was really not an enemy of Christianity. But about 64 AD, Nero begins the first serious persecution of Christianity by the Romans. And so for a period of time now, we have persecution of the Christians by both Jew and Romans. And so, although it had been a hardship for the Christians up to this point, now, beginning with the persecution of Nero, up until the defeat of Israel in 78 AD, now it was harder than ever for the Christians. Nowhere in their earlier history had they been persecuted so severely as they were going to be persecuted. And, and it's interesting that when we come to Revelation, Although they're already in tribulation, they are waiting for an hour of trial where they were really going to get it. In other words, it was bad enough. And John had been banished to the Isle of Patmos, and they were all in tribulation. But they were still waiting for some worse persecution to come their way, and then they would overcome. All right, Jesus made the promise of what he was going to do to the Jews. Those who rejected him, and in that generation, the apostles reiterate, they believe that the promise of the Lord and his coming and his passing judgment on them. Now, this chart here, due to tonight, as we begin to look at the seven churches that the letter is addressed to, this term, he that overcometh, is repeated to each of the seven churches. In other words, that when he writes to he that overcome, they're going to give to eat of the tree of life. And there is within the expression of these churches the fact that they were in a persecution and they were going to have a serious persecution. And they were going to be defeated up to the point of death itself. I mean physically. And they were going to expect, be expected to stand up in their faith up to, in other words, when he said, be thou faithful unto death. Although there is nothing wrong with saying to a Christian, be thou faithful unto death, and you know, you live and you die at 75 or 80 or whatever, and use them in that way. That's no injustice. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying in its context, John is writing to a persecuted people who are literally going to their physical death as a result of being Christians. Nero has lit his gardens with burning Christians at the stake. 
Christians have been thrown into the arenas of animals. The Jews are dragging them out and beating them. There is severe persecution of Christianity. And when John made the statement, Be thou faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life, he had reference to being martyred for what they believed. In other words, you be faithful, even though it's going to cost you your life, and you will receive the crown of life. And so it's be faithful at all costs, no matter what to you physically, that you will receive the crown of life. So there's this imminent trial that we see all the way through here. Now, let's get into the book itself and look at the second chapter. Turn over with me to the second chapter. He writes first to the church at Ephesus, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, remember also that this term seven is used throughout the scriptures in a number of ways. Beginning really with our first seven-day week. But the word seven itself, number seven, symbolized among the Jews is a perfect number. Okay, six is an imperfect number. Six is an imperfect number. The word seven symbolized a perfect number. The words of him, the seven stars in his right hand walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked men, and that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and found them false. Here's another interesting thing. In order to find out the false apostles, they had to put them to a test. Well, the New Testament tells us how that they tested apostles. We know, for example, that uh, in Acts, the first and second chapter, when they were to replace one of the apostles, remember one of the qualifications of an apostle was what? Was one of his qualifications. He was an eyewitness. And so they made one who was an eyewitness. Also, an apostle could perform miracles. And Paul would say that all the signs of an apostle have been worked among you. In Acts 2 and 43, the people stood back in awe of the miraculous things done to the apostles. A sign of the apostle was the fact that the apostles had the ability to lay hands on people and impart the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Acts 8 and verse 18. So they had tested those. They didn't stand the test. But here's an interesting thing. There is no record of any apostle other than John being alive after 70 AD. The early church fathers knew that all the other apostles were dead. Peter's already been killed. Paul's been killed. You read in Acts about the killing of James. And so all the other apostles are dead. In other words, what would be the problem of determining the false apostles? If there's if we're in a, if we're in a situation like 96 where everybody knows that for a number of years now, for a number of years, the only one alive was John. And everybody in the early church knew, okay? We can go back historically and read the documents outside the Bible. Everybody in the early church knew at the time we get to the 90s that the only live apostle was John. So why the big problem in, in, in testing those who were false apostles? Obviously, when he compliments the church at Ephesus there, this was something done in a time when, when there were apostles' sons still alive, and of course were close in where even others had, had been killed. Uh, both Peter and Paul, for example, were killed somewhere in the 60s, probably the mid mid-60s to up, up 68 A.D., right in that area. 
You've persevered, okay? You've endured hardships. These people are enduring hardships for my name and have not grown weary, okay? I hold this against you, you've forsaken your first love. Now come on down to verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So these people, who were in a situation where some had already lost the first love, he says to him that overcomes, that he's the one that will wind up with eternal life. All right now, why is the church of Smyrna? These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions. Notice, what do we see there? Persecution. I know your afflictions and your poverty. Yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. So there are those people claiming to be Jews who are slandering them, causing them affliction, but he says they're not. What does the New Testament identify as the true Jew? Circumcised in the heart. And remember that Jesus, uh, in the, especially in the Gospel according to John, among others, and he told those Jews that, you know, you're, you're not of the seed of Abraham. They let him argue with him. He says, no, if you were of Abraham, you would think like Abraham did. You know, Abraham looked for me and, and was glad of it. And yet these people who have their physical lineage in Abraham and who call themselves Jews, who did Jesus say their real father was? Wasn't John there when he talked to him? John the Apostle was there, and he's already told them that your real father is the devil. And so is it a very easy transition for John to say that these people that say they're Jews are not, they're a synagogue of Satan. The synagogues are still there, and there are people claiming to be Jews, they're afflicting the church. Do not be afraid of those now or what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. And then he comes up down and says, He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Again, emphasizing that they were going to die a physical death. Don't worry about the physical death. It's the second death that you've got to worry about. Okay, what do we see there? In afflicted people, the ones doing the affliction are those who are the synagogue of Satan, who say they're Jews, but they're not. But now, even though they're being afflicted, what does he say? It's going to get worse. You're going to suffer. You will suffer persecution, even to the point of death. So it's going to get worse for these people. Okay, now, come on over to the church at Perga. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. And so, obviously, there is a strong adversary there to the church. But despite that strong adversary, he says you did not renounce your faith in me. And remember, at this time now, we have both Rome and the Jews that are persecuting Christianity. 
Then he mentioned somebody that was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And then there were those holding to the teaching of Balaam. And he goes ahead and talks about it. He gets on down verse 15. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, for our purpose tonight, we're not going to get off into the Nicolaitans or, or what's involved there. Our only concern is to establish, hey, here is a people that are being persecuted right then. And something worse out here is waiting for them. And then look what he says in verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat. I will give some of the hidden man. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it. Known only to those who receive it. So what do we have again? A persecuted people, afflicted, hardship, and then to those who overcome, they would have eternal life. The church is by a jar, okay? To, let's see, come on down to, uh, uh, he, again, he deals with some of their deeds. Uh, look at verse 19. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service, your perseverance, that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality. And the eating of food sacrificed idols. Now, when you read about uh, being deceived in sexual immorality and idolatry and all, keep in mind at this time in history, just as we studied when we looked at Corinthians and the other places in the New Testament, as we studied throughout the history of Israel, that the idolatry of that day centered around adultery itself. Baal, for example, was a male fertility god. The Astra was a female fertility god. And the way they worshipped these fertility gods was through male cult prostitutes and through female cult prostitutes, and they committed adultery with. And so these people have been enticed. Again, we're not getting into detail in this. And he's just concerned about some wrong things that he wants corrected. And then come on down to verse 25. Only hold on to the wall. Let's see. Hold on to what you have until I come. Notice what he said to those people. You hold on to what you have until I come. Now you make sense of that statement. If he's talking about a so-called second coming that's thousands of years down in the future. You people that are doing some good things, but you're over here doing some wrong things, and I'm concerned about it, want you to get back and do those right things and hold on to what you've got until I come. But it really, he's not even talking about that. He's talking about something thousands of years down in the future. This is a personal letter to these seven churches, and it's concerned about the persecution that they're undergoing, the suffering, also the times when they deviate and go contrary to God's will, wanting them to be right with God, wanting them to overcome. Look at verse 26. Here we go again. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Uh, again, we'll look at this later, come back and look at this later, verse 27. He'll rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. You think that as a result of overcoming, they were going to be literally given a piece of iron and lost strength, and they were going to rule over the nations and dash them to pieces like pottery. Remember he told the apostles they were going to set up the 12 tribes? It's 
12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. How did they do this? How did the apostles wind up on uh, 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel? So they're proclaiming the gospel and then judging in that sense. Okay, they proclaim the gospel and judge in that sense. We see that all through the book of Acts. We're going to go back and, and find later on some similar statements to this in the Old Testament. Joyce had, had reference to the fact that his way is going to win out. You just hang in there. You stand up for my truth. You preach my truth. And although you're being persecuted now, although some of you are going to go to your death, you're going to overcome. And my way is going to overcome. And the final analysis, God's will would win out. But remember, something's going to happen. Not only is Judaism going to downfall, but what about Rome? Christianity is going to eat up Rome. And by the time we get to the fourth century, Christianity will be recognized as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Christianity will conquer Rome and go on to conquer the world. Okay, come on down to chapter 3. The angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the works of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what time I will come to you. Remember how Jesus used that illustration several times to talk with his apostles. You know, don't go to sleep. Think of all those uh, illustrations. Don't go to sleep. Be awake. Uh, don't make it such that I come to you like a thief. Read 1 Thessalonians, all of it in its context. And note, for example, in 1 Thessalonians 5, that his coming would be like a thief to the unbelievers and those who were not ready for it. But to the believers who were waiting and knew his signs and believed in it, they would know and recognize him when he came. So it would be to those that, that did not believe and those that went by that his coming would be like a thief. You've got a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white. They are worthy. Here we go again. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, we, can know, we know there that he's talking to them in its context and all, but from a standpoint of principles applying to you and I today, what do you get out of this? That uh, we're going to finish up an event that happened and sealed and fulfilled some prophecy. It was a tremendous event. What are some principles that we're picking up as he writes to these churches? When he says, be thou faithful up to and including death, and then he writes to a church, and he says, you've got a few people there that not their, have not soiled their garments. They'll walk with me, and I will not blot out their name. What do, what do we get from that? That was true for them at that time. It would be true for us at this time. If we are faithful in all that we can study in his word, the best of our ability, we will receive the same reward. Okay, that God's the same. He doesn't treat people different. And so that we can see it's true, but we can also see something else. That you can flat die as a Christian, can't you, in a horrible way. And, and this attitude that's sometimes propagated by the TV, uh, propagated by the TV evangelist, uh, that you put on 
nosy and you know you're not sick and you get rich and all that good stuff. That may happen to TV matches. But that's not what happened to these people when they were dedicated. You can flat out die and suffer and go to jail as a Christian. And these people were doing exactly that. And, and he meant to be faithful unto death. And we ought to always know, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, our God is able. But God will do what he wants to in the proper time. And it may be God's will to allow. And, and here, we're going to, in fact, we're going to get over here to the sixth chapter. And some faithful people that have already been put to death want to know, well, God, when are you going to take vengeance on those people? And God's going to tell them time's not right. I'll do it my own time. But vengeance will be taken. But we can see here that it is possible to be a Christian and also to, to apostatize and to leave and to, to have your name blotted out. Uh, people that teach the doctrine of eternal security. I don't know how they even deal with that passage. I really don't. Uh, I just don't know how you can deal with that. When these people obviously were written in the book of life and their name was going to be blotted out as a result of falling by the wayside. And we can see also that although God recognizes that we're not perfect, we have constant need of the cleansing of His blood, it seems to me there's one thing that He does expect of us in a, in a way that is right on beam all the time, and that is our trust and faith in Him and our willingness to stand up for Him. There's a difference between making mistakes because we fall short and constantly strive to do better and just simply stepping aside and, and not maintaining that strong faith in God and being willing to do the things that He wants us to do. Okay, now, come on over to the Church of Philadelphia. Of all seven churches, this is the only one He really compliments. And He does compliment the Church of Philadelphia. Come on down to verse 9, because this is another key verse. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not. Okay, we've had that before. They're liars. I will make them. Why would anybody go around claiming to be a Jew if they're not? Now you think about that. There's only one way that statement even makes sense, and that's in the vein that we read in the Gospels, where you've got these people that are physically Jews and physically in the lineage of Abraham, but they're rejecting the truth, and Jesus said, no, your father's devil. It's not the Lord. And so why would anybody go around claim to be a Jew? These people were claiming to be Jews because they thought they were Jews. And they were fleshly Jews, but they were not spiritual Jews. And so they claim, but they're not, they're liars. But notice now, notice what he says. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming soon. Let me think on that. Here are Christians being persecuted, right? Severely persecuted. Who's making it rough on These people are saying, we're Jews. We're God's people. We're Jews. John says, they're liars. They're of the synagogue of Satan. But he says, I'm going to make known who my people are. Hang in there. I'm coming soon. 
Verse 17, it's now time for judgment to begin at the house of God. There was a fight going on in the house of God. Fleshly Israel was persecuting spiritual Israel. Fleshly Israel was saying that we are the people of God. Spiritual Israel was saying, no, to reject Christ is to reject God. You have rejected the Messiah. There is no salvation except in Him. That was blasphemous to fleshly Israel. So fleshly Israel persecuted spiritual Israel. And Peter says, the Lord is coming soon. Judgment will begin in the house of God. And so the world had two groups of people saying, we are the true people of God. Judgment began at the house of God. And then as he says here to the church of Philadelphia, I'm going to make it known that you're the one that I love. They will bow down. Remember, during this period of time, the Christians are preaching that the Lord is coming back and he's going to pass judgment. They're preaching that. And remember again, as we read in the book of Acts, when they would get onto Paul's case and the others would say, well, he's saying that they're going to destroy our city. And our temple's going to be torn down. Well, that's exactly what they were preaching. That you're dead just like Jesus did. There won't be one stone left standing when I get through with it. Okay, come on down to the church at the Laodicea. Not a whole lot good. Isn't it interesting? Okay, this is a good contrast to me. These churches are so close together. They are suffering the same kind of persecution. And yet, isn't it interesting that right in between the church of Sardis and the church of Laodicea, this lukewarm group that the Lord was going to spew out of his mouth, they didn't repent. And the other where he was going to blot out most of their names. And right there, there was a church in Philadelphia that he complimented so highly. In other words, what we are is determined by what's in here and not by outward circumstances. And so here are people suffering the same things, but one little group is standing, and he's real proud of them. The other groups don't have to blot out most of their names, and this group over here I'm going to spew out of my mouth, he says. And so what we do, and so often, we want to blame the situation for all our shortcomings, lack of faith, whatever it is, and yet a good example right here that what we really are in the final analysis is not determined by the events out there. The events out there simply show how weak and how strong we are. The Civil War gave Abraham Lincoln a chance to show the kind of man that he really was. Without that, he would have had an opportunity. And so the persecution that was the downfall of some gave others the opportunity to shine, to show the kind of people that they really were. Okay. Because you're, you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, the church is allowed to sin, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. And by the way, from what I've read uh, in my research on the church at Laodicea, this was a wealthy area, a wealthy group of people. You don't need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich. And white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and shame and sorrow put on your eyes so that you can see. To those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Here we go again. To him who overcomes, 
I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I will remain and sit with my Father on His throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, that makes a good breaking place for tonight. We've covered the day. We've looked at internal and external evidence. We've now looked at the seven churches in an overall view. We've noted that right before 70 AD, there's seven churches in this area. By the time we get to the 90s, there's many more churches, according to historians. We have seen that these people are living in a situation where they're under affliction, they're being persecuted, and two different times, we've had some people identified as individuals who claim to be Jews, but really they're not. And we have pointed out that judgment is coming, and that God is going to separate, and that he's going to show who it is that he loves, and who's really telling the truth. This is the introduction to this book, to the seven churches, telling who needs to repent, to repent, telling all of them they've got hope that the Lord is coming, he's already said I'm coming soon. Now, what happens in the fourth chapter? We have a series of visions concerning this judgment to come. And what we wind up with is two series of visions, the book of Revelation, showing this judgment. And next week, what I'll try to do is go through and, and we'll hit this first full series of visions and hopefully culminate in the 11th chapter. Okay, we'll take it from the 4th, go through the 11th in an overall view, and culminate with the 11th. All right, then we'll go through the second series the following week. Then after we've done that, we'll come back and zero in on the specifics of the language itself and look at it more carefully. Anybody have anything you'd like to comment about before we close? For me, uh, some material that we've covered so far, just an overall way on the chart, 